українські воїни. Я бажаю усім вам одного – перемоги. Всім нам. Ви заслуговуєте. Весь наш народ заслуговує. Всі наші батьки, наші діти заслуговують. Наша держава і історія заслуговує нарешті отримати перемогу. Слава Збройним силам України! Слава Україні! Russia continues to weaponize the winter with attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Ukraine strikes back with drone attacks on military installations deep inside Russian territory. Kyiv also moved to remove one of the last remaining vestiges of Moscow's malign influence with pending legislation to ban the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine following a series of raids. Vladimir Putin conceded this week that the war could be a very long process, adding that he did not plan to call up more troops. So what happens next? Well, I got just the guests to unpack it all, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn is veteran Russia watcher James Sher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow on the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Welcome back to The Vertical, James. Thank you. It's nice. It's not it's suffering from minus eight weather. Also joining us from Dallas, Texas, is David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in European Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Welcome back to The Vertical, David. Thanks, Brian. Great to be with both of you. Great to have you. And James, uh, start with you to get the ball ro rolling. I wanted to get your reaction to recent developments and what they pretend about where this war is and where it, it, it may be headed. Russia's strategy appears clear. Weaponize the winter, make Ukraine suffer, and cripple Kyiv's energy infrastructure. Ukraine, meanwhile, as I noted in the intro, has staged a series of bold drone attacks inside Russian territory, targeting military installations, and Kyiv appears to be finally moving against the Moscow Patriarchate, one of the last vectors of Russian influence in Ukraine. How do you see this last week's developments? Well, as I think all of us have said here from the beginning, very beginning, uh, this is going to be a long war. And it has now entered the um, the next phase, um, which is going to be protracted, very difficult, in some ways different. And all of this, ironically, because of Ukraine's successes. One consequence of those successes is that the Russian defensive line, which had stretched at one point to 1,100 kilometers, has now contracted substantially. And when you add to that the reinforcements coming in and the very systematic, well-planned uh, defensive fortifications being built, Ukraine's earlier strategy, which involved a lot of deception, a lot of maneuver, 
is going to operate with far less, uh, far more restrictions here. So that's uh, one thing. Secondly, we um, we do have to ask some ultimate and deeply disturbing questions about the attacks on the energy infrastructure. On the positive side, um, air defenses and do not count, please, the Ukrainian systems involved in the air defenses, the contribution, which is considerable apart from the foreign contribution. Um, the air defenses have been, uh, by most metrics, phenomenally successful, but we've seen that even a few missiles coming in every day can do devastating um, damage. And the other positive side is that Ukraine is now in a position to teach us about how to repair damage effectively. It's remarkable um, how efficient they've done. And this is classically Ukrainian because they didn't have these skills before. All mm -hmm. has been um, learning on the job uh, very rapidly. But we still have to ask the ultimate question as to whether um, the Russians, now backed by, by Iranian missiles, not missiles, Iranian, Iranian uh, drones, um, with a possible addition of missiles coming in, um, could not just cripple, but destroy the um, electricity and energy grid. Um, the third point I would highlight is we are now seeing what some of us warned about very early, that whatever the policy limitations on what uh, the United States is providing, there are real limitations in our own capacity because our defense industry has not been set up to deal with a war at industrial scales. And that is what we are looking at. And this needs a systematic response that very few people are talking about. Uh, so there are other factors as well, but let me leave it there, except to say that Ukrainians are prepared, definitely prepared for a much longer war. Uh, the, the key question, as always, is: Are we? Right, David. What are what are what are your thoughts on 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 the developments in the past week? Because Ukraine certainly does appear to taking to, to be taking the fight to Russia, to, despite these attacks uh, on on the energy infrastructure. The Ukrainians are demonstrating once again that they are prepared to win this. Uh, they are determined that they will win. The vast majority of the Ukrainian people believe that they will prevail in this conflict, and they are showing signs that they will be able to accomplish that. As James has indicated, the question is about the Western support that they do need, they desperately need. The Ukrainians will fight whether they have it or not. But in order to help them win, we need to make sure we continue to provide this uh, vitally important assistance. I think the Ukrainians are demonstrating that they are prepared now to go after wherever Russian strikes take place. Mm -hmm. And they should. This is self-defense. This is, this is absolutely right. permissible. Uh, it's nonsense to call it anything beyond that. And for those who argue that this runs the risk of escalation, well, they should convey that message to Moscow. 
Of course, we had Putin earlier this week say that this was in response to the uh, bombing on the on the Kerch Strait Bridge. Um, the Russians have been doing this from day one and right. uh, committing war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide against Ukraine. Um, they obviously didn't like that the Ukrainians were able to achieve a, a, a strike on the bridge. But uh, the other point I would just add to what James has said is this is further evidence of how barbaric the, the Russian actions have been, how Putin doesn't value human life in the least, unless, of course, it's his own. And uh, this, I think, is a reminder of the importance of accountability and justice for the uh, terrible damage that Russian forces have done to Ukrainian citizens, to the country as a whole. Um, this cannot be simply dismissed if there is a point where they sit down and negotiate. Yeah, no, I, I I would agree, and I I don't think it will be dismissed. Maybe maybe I'm 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 too optimistic there, but I don't think there's any way to dismiss this. Uh, James, I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned about the 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 the, the terrible situation with the with the energy infrastructure. What what steps do you think we in the West can be taking now to help Ukraine withstand this this weaponization of the winter, which is what we're what we're witnessing right now? Is there is there anything we can do on our end? To help to help on that. Um, can I preface this answer with some point I should have made earlier? Sure. That we have seen with this um, uh, new strategic direction of a war of attacks on critical infrastructure of all kinds, um, a, a classic uh, signature of the Putin modus operandi. As soon as he loses one game, he starts another one. Mm -hmm. And uh, I fear there will be more if we can answer your question successfully. The very disturbing element, the particularly disturbing element to me, is that Iran has entered this war. Now, um, Ukraine has not had bad relations with Iran by comparison with anyone else, certainly hasn't attacked Iran. Um, Iran is a, uh, is a, is the, uh, biggest um, security threat to Israel. It is has been long regarded as a major security threat to U.S. interests in the Near and Middle East. And yet, uh, there is no sign that we are prepared to um, respond to that and play a tough game directly with regard to Iran. Uh, one thing the Iranians are doing is, of course, training Russians to use their systems effectively, and they have at least one base for doing so in Crimea. Now, who is preventing, what is preventing Ukraine from striking that base? Mm. Is the United States imposing any limitations on this? Why is Iran not more fully part of our public and policy public discussion, uh, your public discussion in the United States, ours in the West? I am sure it is part of the policy discussion in the United States, but not the public discussion. Mm. So, uh, again, I fear that with so many other things we are looking at, we are continually, and it's predictable, continually under pressure to raise our game if we intend to accomplish our minimal objectives, mm. which are that Ukraine will, uh, Ukraine will not be defeated. 
Mm-hmm. Now, um, as far as Iran goes, I'm not sure. We pretty much got sanctions on Iran dialed up to 11 in the U.S. So I'm not sure there's much more we can do. But, David, maybe maybe I'm wrong, David. Am I missing something? Should we be doing more to punish Iran? The Europeans are the ones that need to be doing more on Iran. You're right. We have a lot of sanctions on Iran. There are more we could impose, but uh, we are close to the max on on sanctioning Iran. But it's Europe that I think could do much more in making the situation difficult for the Iranians. Um, James is right that that the insertion of Iran into this war is a a very disturbing development, and it is a reminder of how these kinds of like-minded dictatorial regimes come to each other's aid in times of need. Uh, The Iranians have their own problems on their hands, and that's where I think we can uh, weigh in more effectively in clear uh, solidarity with the protesters in Iran. The regime is under tremendous pressure and hoping that the Russians can help bail them out. Um, But at the same time, for anyone who wants to try to normalize relations with Iran or return to a nuclear deal, uh, this should be evidence that that is not possible. With these kinds of regimes, deals don't mean anything. Uh, they sign them, and and the signatures are are worth less than the paper they're written on. Um, but I, I also just want to add, Brian, if I can, to what James was describing. Um, I, I wrote a piece with Bill Taylor earlier this week in the Post, mm-hmm. arguing that we need a kind of massive assistance uh, approach for Ukraine. The the Russians are trying to bomb them into submission, freeze them to death, deprive them of water, deprive them of food. Uh, I think this is a time, Bill and I argue for almost uh, the Berlin airlift kind of approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, to make it clear that these tactics by the Russians will not succeed, and it isn't just the Ukrainians who will defy the Russians, but it's we and the rest of Europe and in the United States that will help them defy the Russians. Uh, the country that hardly gets a mention here, but which is critical, is Israel. Uh, the Israeli yeah. foreign policy and defense establishment seem to be more skittish about um, upsetting Putin uh, than than we are. And uh, yes, we all understand the situation in Syria, but still one wonders why and whether this is excessive. The Israelis, and even I, from reading public sources, know exactly where in Iran uh, these weapons and the more sophisticated weapons, missiles we're talking about than possibly um, delivering, are produced. If Israel were a full ally of Ukraine, I think uh, they would be uh, they would be dangerously vulnerable now to a military strike. But we're not talking about that. That doesn't seem to be part of the plot. Yeah, although that's the kind of thing we really wouldn't know about until it happened, right? Um, although, it, I mean, Putin has gone out of his way to court Israel, um, and, and and I think it's it, it, or specifically to court Netanyahu. Um, and it appears to be paying off at the moment. James, I wanted to stick with you because I know you've done some work on this issue, but it caught my attention this week when uh, pending legislation was announced to ban the Moscow Patriarchate of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine. Um, I remember thinking back to your work on autocephaly a couple of years, a few years back. How do you interpret this? It's, it's a, my, my first reaction is like, like, what took them so long? It, it, it seems like this is something that, that I would have expected to have been done much earlier, given that the church is one of the last remaining vectors of Russian malign influence uh, in Ukraine. Well, as you said, Brian, this story began a long time ago. In um, 2014, the 
Orthodox Church in Ukraine that was affiliated and, in fact, um, fully part of the Moscow Patriarchate, uh, and hence the Russian state, um, a, 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 a conspicuous number of clerics openly um, went over to the side of what we then called the separatists um, and urged their parishioners to do the same. And their parishioners left in droves. And the result of that, as you said, was finally, um, because it was not a new issue, the granting of canonical independence, autocephaly, to a Ukrainian church, which is now called the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. In response to that, defensively, the Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine appeared to distance itself from Moscow. But since the war has started, now we see there is abundant evidence that, again, they are being used, willingly or otherwise, by Ruski uh, Mir, by Russian security services, uh, to cause divisions inside Ukraine. And so Zelensky, who was ignoring this issue, finally acted uh, very decisively. There have been a number of raids on some very significant yeah. church temples and property. Um, and with very limited public reaction, even on the part of the parishioners of these churches. This has um, clearly been a popular move in Ukraine. So, um, so there we are. Um, I think if this were going to blow up into uh, a, a major internal issue, the time for that is gone. Yeah. I've also read reports that the Russian Orthodox Church was, trying to, was helping Russia kidnap Ukrainian orphans. Uh, this is an issue that's not gotten nearly enough attention of the, the, the um, Ukrainian children, mostly orphans, from my understanding, it's mostly orphans, that are uh, being taken into Russia. I don't know if you have, have seen anything on that score, but it seems the church, according to what I've been reading, has been, has been uh, one, of the, one of the main players in that. Do you know anything about that? Not, I, 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 I'm sorry, I, I don't specifically know more than you know, the filaments you mentioned, but obviously, as we've seen, with the huge abduction, of Ukrainian children, uh, staggering levels, that they don't need the church to um, uh, do this. Where they are in occupation, they can do what they want mm. uh, and deport people wholesale. Uh, where they're not in occupation, the Moscow Patriarchate can do nothing at, at all. Mm. Okay, no, I've just, uh, I was, um, th that is an issue I want to pick up on. David, did you want to say something? I thought, I thought you, uh, you, you wanted to jump in on this. All right, before we move into the second half, the last thing I want to talk about before we move into the second half is this issue of the winter. Um, can and should Ukraine try to make territorial gains in the winter? I mean, I, what, what should we expect going forward? In the winter, should we expect the conference, the conflict, to freeze to a degree, or should we expect Ukraine to continue to push for territorial gains? James, any any thoughts on that? Um, Ukrainians will work this out themselves. They will do as they have done in the past: explore all the possibilities, all the areas of weakness, and they will not observe timelines set by public or political expectations. So if go either way, my own view, as I said, is that um, 
we are now in a phase that's going to make these kinds of dramatic offensives difficult between now and the end of the year. I noted recently that the governor of Luhansk Oblast uh, remember, please, that at least half of Luhansk Oblast is not occupied and it has a mm -hmm. Iranian governor, said that he expects that the entire Oblast will be liberated by the end of the year. I think that is rather optimistic, if yeah. I may say so. Yeah, no, and I, I do know that Ukraine is making gains, uh, slow but steady gains in Luhansk Obama. David, any thoughts here? I, I think, one, we should not be advising the Ukrainians what to do. They have handled this campaign brilliantly, in my view, um, in light of the odds stacked against them. And the last thing the, the United States or our European allies should be doing is telling the Ukrainians whether to pause or move ahead. The Ukrainians will know far better than any of us. Mm. The other thing is, as the ground freezes, I think the Ukrainians will continue their campaign. They don't want a respite. They, I think my sense is they view a respite as being in Russia's favor yeah. uh, to allow Russia to recongregate their forces, send more to the front lines as cannon fodder as they've been doing uh, uh, from day one, but particularly since the mobilization order. And so I, I think we are likely to see the Ukrainians continue to make gains. It will be very difficult. And tragically, there will be more Ukrainians who will die in the process. But the Ukrainians are determined to win, and they uh, believe they will prevail. And the last thing I think that is helpful uh, for uh, those in, in other parts of Europe and the United States to do is to call for negotiations, a call for security yeah. guarantees, or for any of this nonsense that we keep hearing uttered by people who actually are not on the front lines, um, and want to save Putin's bacon, quite literally. Uh, it, it is striking to me how, as the Ukrainians were on the march, there were more calls from certain circles in the West mm -hmm. for negotiations, for a ceasefire, um, as if the concern that Putin might actually lose control of this situation. Putin is still, in my view, in, in trouble with all of this. I don't know how deep the trouble is, but this has not gone well. And if we need evidence that he is aware right. of that, the mobilization order is, is the most blatant uh, evidence of that. He never would have ordered the mobilization if he thought things were going well. Right. And that, to me, is a sign that he knows it is. Let us suppose there will come a time when all of the intake from the September mobilization has been as trained up as this dilapidated and somewhat dysfunctional Russian system is capable of training them up, and uh, although continuing to impose withering losses on the Ukrainians, they don't get anywhere. The lines stay roughly as they are. Right. Now, does Putin order a fresh mobilization or not? Right. Because the first one had internal repercussions. Uh, it, if it is now seen that it has not produced any gains, and then he orders another one, what are the what are the reverberations inside Russia? This is a key question, and at least one state Putin has made at least one statement saying there will not be yes. uh, a fresh mobilization in January. So that really bears watching, and if that's where we are, the you know, the vector of development in over 2023 is going to continue to be in Ukraine's favor, unless, again, Putin changes the game again in some demonstrably uh, horrific and unexpected way. Right. David, I wanted to drill down on something you were just talking about, and that is that the, these calls for negotiations that 
they do seem to pop up at points in time when Ukraine is being very successful, interestingly enough. What do you think is behind this? Are these just um, misguided calls by people who don't understand the situation? Are they are they conduits for somebody inside the policy community and you know, among decision makers? What do you what do you see driving this? Is it legitimate fear of Putin escalating um, up to nuclear weapons if the conflict metastasizing? How do you view these calls? I think there are several factors here, Brian. Some come from people who actually argued against providing any military assistance to Ukraine before the war. Right. Uh, Sam Charup is obviously the person uh, most notable in that camp. Um, and and so it, it, Sam, I, I mean, it was it was an atrocious article he wrote in Foreign Policy in January. And if I were he, I'd just lie low after that. Um, others are worried about escalation. Um, that if we continue to provide this assistance and if the Ukrainians continue on the march, if they continue these strikes in Russia, that Putin will escalate. Um, so far, all the red lines Russia has drawn in this war have been erased, and Putin right. hasn't really done much of anything. Um, I, I find the rhetoric about the use of nuclear weapons to be fairly hollow. Can't rule it out completely. Right. Always be mindful of it, but don't get paralyzed by it, um, by a fear that if we continue to support the Ukrainians, who are the ones dying and fighting on the front lines, right. um, that Putin will will use a nuclear weapon. Some of it is driven by a fear that if Ukraine actually does succeed, Putin could fall, and then we have an unknown, unpredictable situation inside Russia. My response to that is, I actually know what we have right now, and I don't right. think Ukrainians like it, and I don't think anybody else likes it. So I'm willing to roll the dice, but at the end of the day, that'll right. be up to Russians to decide, not right. us, although I think we can apply more pressure. So a number of different factors, none of them, I think, uh, convincing. Some of them are pretty disturbing. Um, and what we need to focus on is continuing to help Ukraine not just defend itself, but win. And there is an right. enormous difference between the two. The more afraid we are of Russian escalation, the greater the likelihood is, and this is something that's not understood because it's, it's part, it's a symptom of what we have spoken about before, the, um, the withering away of the culture, understanding and the culture of deterrence in the leading Western states. Yeah. It is striking to me, though, how many people in parts of Europe, uh, in, in the United States, are willing to sacrifice Ukraine's territory yes. in the interest of finding a negotiated solution to this. I don't hear a lot of Ukrainians talking about right. sacrificing their territory, making territorial compromises, uh, but these calls coming from D.C. and elsewhere um, uh, strike me as, as, as incredibly unhelpful, demoralizing to Ukrainians. Um, a boost to the Kremlin. They play right into the Kremlin's narrative, and the best they could do would just be to shut the hell up. Right. Now, David, just sticking just for one, a little bit more sticking with this. I mean, you know how Washington works, right? And like sometimes op-eds don't appear in the Washington Post or the New York Times by accident. They are conduits for, for policymakers' views. Do you see these calls as an evidence of any emerging splits in the policy, in, 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 among policymakers? There, there are times, Brian, as you know, that um, there are op-eds that appear that are trial balloons for the administration right. to test the reaction on certain ideas. Uh, I don't know enough to know whether that's been the case right. recently. 
Um, there was a flurry of them, um, yep. for sure. And uh, I don't know if that was coordinated or not. I don't want to play into yeah. conspiracy theories. Um, but uh, let's also remember General Milley was was talking about that the winter is a time to sit down and negotiate. I thought that was incredibly unhelpful yeah. uh, for the uh, chief of the uh, joint staff, uh, chairman of the joint staff to come out and say that. And it also seemed to be out of sync with the rest of the administration's line. So um, uh, General Milley, great respect for the guy, but I wish he'd stay in his lane and not talk about whether negotiations are a proper yeah, that pursuit was, or not. That was surprising, both surprising and disturbing to me. Yeah. Um, with, 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 equally, uh, with, with all due respect to, to General Milley. Oh, that's a good way to segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and do something that's kind of becoming a regular feature of this podcast teasing out potential endgames for the war. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Radical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical and snowy Estonian capital of Tallinn is veteran Russian watcher James Scher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book, Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. And joining us from Dallas, Texas, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia and Ukraine. And these days, and I'm correcting myself here with David's uh, new title, congratulations on the promotion, David actually serves as the Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for now, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Дякую воїнам нашої армії і усім формуванням сил оборони України. Дякую батькам наших воїнів, які виховали дійсно переможців, саме так, переможців. Дякую всім лікарям, медичним сестричкам, які рятують поранених героїв. Дякую кожному, хто зміцнює оборону і забезпечує українських воїнів усім необхідним. So last week, we did an entire podcast dedicated to the question, how does the war end and what happens in Europe when it's over? And the discussion in that episode got me thinking that this would be a good question to periodically return to um, for a very simple reason. How the war ends is contingent on a continuously changing reality on the ground. Currently, Ukraine has the momentum and the initiative, but the question remains, can they sustain it? David, what end states do you envision best and worst and what are the contingencies that are that those end states are dependent upon let me rule out one for starters brian and that's russian victory that 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 isn't going to happen um i think the worst scenario is a an ongoing uh, stalemate um where the two sides are bombing and killing each other 
Um, but I think the best scenario, and I think it is possible as long as we continue to support Ukraine, is Ukrainian victory. And that is also the scenario I would argue that should be the policy, the stated policy of the United States and our European allies to help Ukraine win, to achieve victory and to defeat Russian forces. And what does success in Ukraine mean? It means driving, occupying and invading Russian forces off of Ukrainian territory. I think given the poor state of morale among Russian forces, and I don't think the mobilization has improved that. I think it actually may uh, exacerbate that problem for Putin. I would argue that we have to continue to stand with the Ukrainians. They're the ones fighting and dying. Yes, prices have gone up for us. Energy is a, a bit of a challenge, but it seems to me, given the stakes involved, yep. the least we can do is to endure some of that. I don't mean to make light of it. I don't mean to make uh, to minimize it for people who are having difficulty, but it's the Ukrainians who are the ones who are fighting, not just for their freedom, but for our freedom as well. No, I would I would agree with that. And like, but what are what are the contingencies on those? You say the worst case scenario is effectively a conflict that drags on or freezes. Um, that's that that seems to me to be the the worst we can we can uh, expect right now. And the best, of course, is is driving uh, Russia out of Ukraine. And I assume when you say out of Ukraine, you mean all of Ukraine, including Crimea. I do um, indeed. What are the what are the contingencies for each of those scenarios? Is there any scenario in the middle? Uh, I, I think those are the 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 main two. I, I look. I think a, a sudden Russian military collapse is a possibility that we have to think about. The 1917 uh, scenario, yeah, it, exactly. And, and and I think that scenario is one that we need to give greater thought to because that scenario um, would have its own implications, obviously, inside Russia. Uh, I don't see how Putin could uh, survive that kind of yeah. scenario where the Russian military collapses. And but I do think that that is a, a viable possibility, particularly if we continue to help Ukraine. Uh, every every action that the Russians take, the Ukrainians are responding and pushing back. We need to help them push back even more. And I, I what I also want us to do is to be making decisions on a much faster basis. There have been weapon systems that should have been provided before the invasion, let alone since right. the invasion. And we're taking too long to make these decisions. We have to be thinking much further ahead about what the Ukrainians need, again, to win, not just defend their territory. Yeah, I know. And if you think, imagine if we were if we were giving them you know, HIMARS before the, you know, a year ago, uh, what a different place. Maybe it would, the invasion wouldn't have happened. I mean, it's, probably wouldn't had, have had the Ukrainians had we armed the Ukrainians the way we should have at the before the war, uh, would have could have should have I realize, but uh, it's possible that Putin would have had second thoughts. James, I know this is a subject you you have been wanting to talk about the end states and where this goes. What are what are your what are your scenarios? Worst and best, and and um and, and what are the contingencies? Well, first let's note there was an intriguing, but also ominous statement very recently by um, Anthony Blinken about how, on the one hand, how determined the United States is to continue to supply Ukraine with everything it needs until Russian forces are moved back behind the 24 February demarcation line. And then he added, it will then be up to Ukraine to decide um, what it wishes to do. Um, now, um, I read that as suggesting that Ukraine should not assume it will continue to get the assistance it needs after it reaches that point, once it does, 
The good news is that at least he seems to have committed the administration to supporting Ukraine until it reaches that point. And that is something one can hold the administration to because any suggestion that there should be a compromise solution before Russian forces are expelled from the territory they have now uh, acquired would be in contradiction to that. Mm -hmm. uh, needless to say, there is um, a lack of clarity here, part of which I suspect is deliberate, part of which I suspect is just muddle in Washington. Uh, but as David said, there is no muddle in Ukraine. Now, what is really uh, concerning me is that even many people, and I trust you have seen this, you participate in webinars all over Europe all the time, you experience this. Even people who resolve that this war must end with a Ukrainian victory and a Russian defeat, continue to talk about negotiation as if somehow um, negotiation is an essential element to this. Forgive me, I don't quite understand why. There seems to be an embedded assumption that we either go for an absolute victory and non-stop fighting, which exhausts and depletes the resources of everybody, or at some point we have some kind of negotiated settlement. Now, I mean, let's be clear. We can have a negotiation and even a negotiated settlement, but we can't have one which uh, the Russians are going to abide by. The, this will be the triumph of hope over experience. What we can have is something else. Assuming we reach a point where it is impossible for Ukraine to advance beyond a certain point, then you don't need a negotiation to reach that conclusion. What you need to establish is a balance of forces to Ukraine's advantage. Between the end of the Berlin blockade in 1949, and the start of Ostpolitik and detente, with the exception of the negotiations over the Austrian State Treaty, we didn't have a team of negotiations with the Soviet Union. We built up the security of NATO and the EU as well. We did all of that. We didn't ask them what they thought about it. We, didn't, we weren't interested in getting their approval other than their signatures on pieces of paper. You know, we have forgotten this. Protecting Ukraine, the security of Ukraine, protecting the rest of us for that matter, does not depend upon Russia's consent and agreement. Very difficult to say today because we've just become accustomed to equating any kind of peace with a continued process of negotiation and compromise. What I'm hearing from both of you is that the main contingency here the main contingency is the willingness and capability of the West to continue supporting Ukraine. That seems to be, in both of your bad scenarios, it's a case where the West suffers from the term I hate, Ukraine fatigue, although I just said it, <laughs> but um, where, where, where that happens. And the best case scenario is the West continues to provide Ukraine with robust defense and economic assistance, and Ukraine's ultimately able to achieve a victory. Am I correct in that assumption, David? I notice you're, you're, you're shaking your head. And also, I wanted to drill down on what James was just saying about Secretary Blinken's recent remarks. 
you know better than anybody, David, remarks by a senior State Department official, let alone the secretary, are, are not – they're, they're, they're very, very carefully curated, right? What did you read into this? Does this – what does this say about how the administration may be viewing the NDA here? Well, let me, let me start by saying when we talk about the West, Ukraine is part of the West. Right. Um, so we also have to be careful on how we describe this and talk about the other parts of the West because Ukraine, as I just said, is part of it. So for other parts of Europe and, and the United States, I wish the hand ringers would uh, look at the other side of this and not just worry what happens actually if Ukraine drives Russian forces out of it and look at it as an opportunity. Think of what could happen in Belarus. Think of what yep. could happen for Moldova. Think of what could happen for the entire region and think of what could happen in Russia if Russian forces are defeated in Ukraine and driven back onto Russian territory. Um, and, and it could be an enormous opportunity to see uh, a new page turned in some of these countries. I think Lukashenko is finished the day that Russian forces yep. are defeated in Ukraine. And that would be a good thing for all of Europe and frankly for the world. Um, you know, remember Lukashenko hijacked a civilian airliner right. last year. He's weaponized uh, refugees and immigrants. He isn't just a threat to his own people. And and so I, I wish that, that people would look at the opportunities and the benefits that could come from a Ukrainian victory rather than keep wringing their hands about, oh, woe is Putin. Um, so, so to me, it seems like there is not enough thought given to what could come about uh, by helping Ukraine win. Um, and uh, so, so I, I, I look, I, I think the administration uh, generally has done a good job. Um, I, I wish uh, President Putin, uh, sorry, President Biden did not uh, talk about willingness to sit down with Putin. I, I don't want to see my president sitting down with a guy who's guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity and genocide. Um, it's it's President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people who will decide mm -hmm. whether they want to sit down and talk with the Russians. And as we've been discussing in this podcast today, there's no reason to believe anything the Russians would say or sign or do. Um, and, and to me, the best way to ensure Ukrainian victory is to help the Ukrainians drive Russian forces off of their territory. James, you're holding your finger up. That suggests you have something to say. Let us understand that um, there were Russian forces tasked from day one with liquidating, physically liquidating the entire Ukrainian leadership. Mm -hmm. And Zelensky and his entourage had to be moved with minutes to spare to a shelter under the presidential offices. Leave aside the morality of it. Do we understand the implications, the meaning of sitting down and negotiating and signing agreements with a regime that um, clearly determined from the beginning to eliminate a state and its entire leadership in Europe? We, you know, we need to understand this. Zelensky is absolutely right, of course, the usual suspects forced him to backtrack, to say, we cannot negotiate with Putin. It's not a moral issue as such. It's a very practical one. It's not safe. It's not possible. Second point I want to make, following on from what David said, 
Belarus is not unimportant in this situation. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> if Russia is seen to win this war, the country I am sitting in now becomes uh, its security problems uh, conservatively double. It be Belarus becomes the, a new military district of the Russian Federation. There has been a significant change there, which needs to be understood. I don't think it is. Lukashenko now genuinely desires and is trying to support a Russian victory because he knows, as David said, that if Russia is defeated, everything in Belarus turns upside down and his time is finally over. This great survivor's time is over. Look at the murder of the foreign minister, Makay. The foreign ministry in Belarus, at Lukashenko's behest, was pursuing very professionally diplomacy of trying to increase maneuver uh, between Belarus, um, for, for Belarus, uh, so that it would have options in the West. The Kremlin wanted this stopped. I don't know if the Kremlin gave the order to the Belarusian KGB to, to uh, dispose of Makay or whether it came from Lukashenko itself. But the game has changed. The one thing that Lukashenko is still trying to uh, push back on with regard to Putin is the direct employment of Belarusian forces in Ukraine, because again, he believes that he would not be able to withstand the domestic consequences. So Belarus deserves a lot more attention than it's getting in these mm -hmm. discussions. No, I would agree with that. We are segueing exactly where I wanted to wrap this up, and it's not just the end states for the war. And David, you touched on this in your last uh, set of comments, but the end states for Europe after the war and how that is so contingent on how the war ends. I mean, I wrote a piece for foreign policy a couple of months back, arguing just as you just did, David, that a Russian uh, defeat would create what I call a 1989 moment. Um, and it will be felt in, in, in Moldova, in Georgia, and, and indeed in Belarus as well. Conversely, the security situation, not just for the Baltic states, but I would argue for Europe as a whole, would become much more dangerous in the event of a Russian victory or a perceived Russian victory. And I consider a frozen conflict something that can be spun and interpreted as a Russian victory. Basically, Russia would gain territory. Any thoughts on this from either of you as we as we race towards the end? Well, I'll jump in. Look, this goes beyond Europe. Think mm. about if Prigozhin and Wagner forces are defeated as well with the Russian military. Um, they then are not a factor in places like Syria and Libya and Chad, the Central African Republic, Mali. Think of the, the, the destruction and devastation they're causing in those countries. If, we're, if we help the Ukrainians defeat Russian forces, and by forces I mean the military, and, and Wagner and others like that, the uh, Kadyrov's guys who seem to be getting the crap pounded out of them and deserve it. Um, they, all of this would benefit the entire world, frankly. Right. Then, then we won't see 
uh, food held hostage and and Africans and and Asians and, and anyone else who depends on exports from Ukraine for agricultural and food products held hostage by the right. Russians. So there, there it isn't just Europe. It isn't just the region. There are global ramifications to this, and uh, it seems to me that that argues even more. Uh, why other countries who have been sitting on the fence, like India and South Africa, Brazil and elsewhere, James mentioned Israel before, really need to get off the fence and side with the right. Ukrainians. This is a black and white issue. There is right. no gray here. Ukraine is the innocent victim of Russian barbaric aggression, and the world should stand with the Ukrainians, uh, in my mind, without doubt. And it seems to me, David, I'm picking up, and I'll go go right to you, James, in a, in, a, in a moment. But it seems to me that we are in this moment for the first time in decades, where dictators appear to be back on their heels. Uh, Putin's back on his heels in Ukraine. The Chinese government is having is having problems over over its its, its zero COVID policy. The Iranian regime is appears to be back on its heels. We th this is not now. I, I'm not suggesting causality here. But we do appear to be, for the first time in decades, in one of those moments where democracy appears to be resurgent and dictators are back on their heels. Am I overly optimistic in that assessment, James and David? James, you go first. And I know you want to say something. Well, um, the obvious issue here if we're talking about end state is what is the end state in Russia? Mm. I want everybody to sit down and read the lengthy and dare I say unforgiving and apocalyptic statement written by um, an officers collective called the All Russian uh, Officers Assembly, chaired by someone we've all known as a classic hardliner, uh, former Lieutenant General, uh, mm. warning that the whole manner of thinking, the whole course of action being prepared, this was January now, so it was a month before the war, is one that will put the Russian state in danger and risks making the Russian state collapse. These are not people making moral arguments. These are not people who believe that Ukraine has its own history, Ukraine has its own destiny, its own rights. These are classic hard-knuckled military professionals who are whose top concern is the, the strength, the health, the survival of the Russian state. And that suggests to me there are other mm -hmm. professionals like that with the same concerns. So I think David would agree with me. He's said it now and before that um, if Russia, with all the consequences we have talked about, is defeated in Ukraine, conclusively and unmistakably defeated, the regime in Russia is in jeopardy. But how exactly that plays out, well, that's worth another podcast. We oh, yeah. yeah. Escape the surface here. But that is the big question. And as long as Putin retains effective authority, which he does now, then the question is, when you get towards that position, what does he do? And who will be willing and who will be able to stop him doing it? 
That is a frightening thing to contemplate, but it's something we probably may have to face. Very conscious of the clock, very conscious of the fact that David has a meeting right after this uh, recording, giving, giving you the last word, David, and then we'll wrap it up. The Ukrainians are on the right side here. Um, the the rest of the West should get behind them unreservedly, uh, provide them with the means they need to achieve victory and defeat the Russian forces so that Russian forces don't do this again to the Ukrainians, threaten Moldova, um, threaten the Baltic states or anyone else. The, Putin possibly has cooked his own goose here by making this disastrous decision to invade Ukraine. Uh, he did it in 2014. He redid it in, in February 24th this year. Um, and I don't think we should be concerned about helping him find a way out. Let's let's uh, uh, finish this off so that Ukraine emerges victorious. Let's also start moving um, on reconstruction as well as humanitarian assistance to Ukraine, moving from freezing to seizing uh, Russian assets so that the Russians never get that money back, but instead it goes toward uh, helping compensate the Ukrainians for the terrible damage that the Russian forces have done. So um, I, 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 the West needs to move with more alacrity than it has. I give them credit, but let's also remember Ukraine is part of the West, and so we owe it to them. As James said at the beginning, um, given what the Ukrainians have gone through at this point, I think NATO would be lucky to have Ukraine as a yeah. member, um, not should we consider Ukraine in becoming a member. Now, from your lips to God's ear, and Putin may have cooked his own goose here, might be the best line of the podcast. Um, that we'll wrap it up with that. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you that you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlene's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's uh, Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical and snowy Estonian capitalist city of Tallinn has been veteran Kremlin watcher James Scher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the Center for Defense and at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. And joining us from Dallas, Texas has been David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Thank you both for making us all a lot smarter and for an enlightening discussion. Great to see both of you. Thanks very much. Same here. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Vegas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please don't forget to leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for now, at least, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. Until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.